Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by White Famous. White Famous is a new Showtime original comedy series about trying to make it in Hollywood, starring SNL vet Jay Farrow as Floyd Mooney, a comedian whose career is about to blow up, but he's not sure if he's ready for all that. Can he make it without losing his soul? White Famous is executive produced by Academy Award winner Jamie Foxx, as well as the creator of Californication, Tom Capanos. The show is based on Jamie Foxx's real-life experiences and also stars Michael Rappaport and Jacob Ming-Trent. The two-episode series premiere is Sunday, October 15th at 10 p.m. only on Showtime. You can also watch the hilarious season series premiere right now for free on YouTube. Download the Showtime app to start your free trial. Today's episode of The Watch is also brought to you by Mack Weldon. With a smart design, premium fabrics, and a simple shopping experience, Mack Weldon underwear is definitely better than whatever you're currently wearing. In addition to looking great and feeling great, all Mack Weldon products are crafted with natural fibers that have built-in performance capabilities so that they work hard too. They even have a lot of silver underwear and shirts that are naturally antimicrobial, which means they eliminate odor. All that, and they're shipped right to your door. And here's the deal. If you do not like the first pair, keep it. They will still refund you, no questions asked. Go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off your first purchase using the promo code WATCH. I need supports to have to clear the room. Stand up and walk now. now. Hello and welcome to The Watch. My name is Chris Ryan. I'm an editor at TheRinger.com and joining me in the studio, he just got back from his Vegas residency, it's Andy Greenwald! Listen, I've been chastened. I had a lot of, I had a lot of uh, parry at some counters, some jokes off of your intro yeah. there, but I was warned, repeatedly, <laughs> not to spoil Blade Runner 2049 Immediately. Yeah, well, we want to give people a chance. It's going to say so in the title. When you're looking at okay. your podcast delivery platform, it will say special on Blade Runner 2049. Let, but, you know, I just want to give people a quick let, second. Let, to let's give them, prepare. let's prepare everyone. Yeah. Let's let people know what they're dealing with here on this Thursday re edition of the Watch on the Ringer Podcast Network. God. Boom! You're getting good. Yeah. You're getting your, you're, you're back to fighting weight. I'm getting my reps in. <laughs> yeah. Um, fun show today. Yeah. Because. You and I are going to talk Blade Runner 2049 with some degree of specificity. Mm-hmm. We are going to talk about it. Then, after a little bit of time of us talking about it, we're going to bring in the heavyweight. The we're homie. Going to, we're going to bring in the homie Sam Esmail. Is Sam been on the most times um, of, a ring, of a watch guest? Is Sam now the Tom Hanks of the watch? What I would say is Sam definitely gives me the most notes <laughs> about the watch. <laughs> Executive produced by Sam Esmail. I, I got a text from him after Monday in which he said, Good show today. Still no talk about television shows. Oh, he doesn't like it when we talk about the industry, does he? He was just like, he said, but a nice reunion. (laughs) So he's going to come in pretty hot. But so he's coming on to talk about Blade Runner 2049. And then we will transition to talking about what people probably want to hear from him, which is about last night's season three premiere of Mr. Robot. Yes. So it's stacked. But also it's going to flow, I think. You're, You're running hot. I want you to take the pill. You take the ball. Do you tell me what you thought of Blade Runner 2049 to start with? Let me start with a question. Okay. Why did everyone think I was going to hate this movie? Because it's long. Good point. Yeah. I was angry when I looked at the <laughs> runtime. Not going to lie to you. A little concerned. I was waiting for the like, hey, just got to say, not going to have time to knock this out. You know what? I was a little late picking up, picking up my kid. Yeah? But I knew that going in. That's the ultimate sacrifice <laughs> as a pop culture soldier. Yeah, I thought you were going to like it because it was a long running time. And I thought maybe tonally it might be a little like over serious for you. I have a lot of comments about that. And at times it was. But let me start with the broadest possible strokes. Broader than Dave Bautista's wingspan. Yeah. I loved it. Yeah. I loved it. This movie gave me a lot of pleasure. And I enjoyed the entire experience of watching it. And we're going to get into it. I think there are many, many nits to pick. Mm-hmm. But overall, it was an extremely enjoyable uh, entertainment. It was an extremely ambitious work of art, cinema, cinematic art. Yeah. Um, and primarily, and I think this is, I think this is on brand for me to say this, I was really pleased that this, unlike a lot of movies, certainly high, high concept, high budget genre movies, this did not feel corrupted by television. No, it did now, not. Now, and I know that uh, I am often advocating for television. And when we compliment things like the Marvel Cinematic Universe, it's because it's using the language of television to tell stories on the big screen. 
the biggest flaws in this movie were the ones that were related to plot, which is often the case, I think, you know, in terms of just getting from here to there, like unpacking a mystery. Mm-hmm. All told, though, this made me thrilled to be in the movies because it didn't need to be completely burdened by that, yeah. by those tropes. It could just move. It could fade. It could play with tone and expectation and just experience. It was experiential. Absolutely. I, I compared seeing this movie, and this is pretty pretty bougie of me to say this, but it's like a tasting menu where mm. I felt like I was in the hands of a mm-hmm. chef, and in this case, Villeneuve, and, oh and didn't, the director, Denis Villeneuve, and I felt like he was making me submit. You know, he was making me submit to his. Is that a tasting menu or some sort of S and M dungeon? No, because like there, there are there, there are lots of like chefs will be like yeah. here's like you get fourteen you courses get and I'm going to determine when you feel like you can't take it anymore. Then I hit you with the sorbet. Yeah, you know that's when I that's when I hit you with Harrison Ford mm-hmm. an hour and a half in. Mm-hmm. You know, and you're like this is so heavy. And I, 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 it's strange for me to say this. I adored this movie. I really loved it. Yeah, even though I almost fell asleep. In the middle of it. And I I rarely get tired in the movies, but I was like, there was a hypnotic mm-hmm. middle act that I thought was very like quiet tonally. It was very uh, monochromatic for a while. A lot of it is in the Los Angeles stuff. With, and when Mackenzie Davis's character uh, uh, in, in oh, takes on, or I rather the, the joy takes on Mackenzie Davis's character. But, you know, overall, when you start to get towards that conclusion, you start to like go further and further and, and the Harrison Ford part happens, you start to feel yourself get picked up again. And it was like to feel like I was being, I was being orchestrated. I was being manipulated, not mm-hmm. in a way where like my emotions were being manipulated, mm-hmm. but like my senses. Yeah. I that have, was really cool. I have to say, Armand Denis. Yeah. I love to say it. I'll yeah. say it again. Armand Denis is now, it is clear, he is the prince who was promised for this time of movies. And what I mean is, he maybe maybe alone. I mean, I, I'm uh, maybe Ryan Coogler when we see Black Panther, but at this moment, um, Denis Villeneuve is the guy who can find the space to make art within the machine. Yeah, within the machine of how Hollywood makes movies today. The fact that he snuck in this incredibly Trojan horse, and I don't mean Trojan small, buried in a. Um, incinerator horse the way he trojan horse this very bizarre psychosexual uh drama basically into a huge budget science fiction franchise movie is truly remarkable yeah it's like weird futuristic vertigo the scene you're talking about yeah specifically i wanted to talk about that scene which is when when there is basically there are four hands none of which are human caressing ryan gosling's robot body Mm mm-hmm for quite some time. Well, Mackenzie it, Davis is a human, isn't she? You no, know, she's a robot too. Yeah. Okay. They have that conversation in the in the in the bazaar. And also, she's part of the the replicant. Oh, I thought army because I thought end. she says to him, "You don't like real girls." Well, I think that's part of the that that that's part of the the raised eyebrow. I oh, mean, okay. She is more of a real girl than Joy. Yeah. Well, yeah. Um, that scene goes on for a while, and I'm like, "How is this even here? How did he have?" the stones or the talent or the vision or the leverage to keep this scene in this movie. And there are a number of scenes like that. He plays with, I mean, he's just a masterful visual director, obviously, but he plays with scale and silence and physicality in a way other directors don't seem to know how to do in contemporary movie making. Because obviously there's a huge amount of CGI in this too, but there's so much stillness. There's so much quiet. There's so much sense of physical a physicality, yeah. you know, the, the statues in the desert, um, the smashing through walls, you know, that grounds you and exhilarates you, even though this is very much a movie of of today. It's it's strange for a, sh- a film that feels so widescreen and epic and every frame is filled with so much uh, sort of painterly play, like, like painterly use of light mm-hmm. and color. And to that, we have to give a lot of credit for to Roger Deakins, who's yes. a uh, cinematographer who's worked on most of Denis Villeneuve's uh, stateside films, except for Arrival, Arrival, which was shot by Bradford Young. Who is who the is new also, Roger Deakins. Yeah, right. I mean. um, but one of the things I loved about Blade Runner 2049 was its willingness to obscure things. It's not actually... Oh, we have to show every 
part of what it's very dark and it's very gray and it's very foggy and you don't always see there's a suggestion of what's underneath these like these roofs and what, mm-hmm. everything else when you're doing that overhead shot that's flying into Los Angeles for the first time and it looks like fields of solar panels mm-hmm. or whatever it is but then you can see there's a city underneath mm-hmm. that he he is willing to not show you something and that is sort of that's something that Spielberg was always really great at, mm. where he would, you know, not show you the shark. He would mm. show you someone's face reacting to a dinosaur rather than the dinosaur at first. He understands that sometimes it's the tantalizing, not quite getting it, mm-hmm. that is the thing that is so wondrous about going to the movies. Also, there is a um, mastery of detail yeah. where the production, I, I wish we had started this podcast with the production designer's name in front of us, because the cars, you know, the door of Dave Bautista's farming shack where he farms the bugs, the sound of the old-fashioned cooking pot where he's cooking garlic. I mean, this is all, I'm just naming things in the first 30 seconds, which may cause people to suspect I didn't actually see the movie, but I did. Um, they're all so considered and so well chosen so that when you get the beats that I that probably in a pitch session, right, or, or on a studio notes call before they even shot it, the, the beats that got... Uh, more conservative uh, executives excited. When you get to them, it is it is thrilling in a way action movies rarely are anymore because everything is so telegraphed or it's always one note. I'm thinking specifically of when he gets to the the wreckage of San Diego and then there's the drone strike. Yeah, on that those was guys. incredible. I mean, it is heart in your throat and it's exhilarating there, there's the best movies. and juxtaposed with her getting her nails done and she's do, controlling yeah. this drone through her sunglasses dennis gassner by the way is the person who did the production design i mean the amount of thought that went into all of this um is is staggering now i, I don't know whether to start with this or end with this but i think my biggest question coming out of the movie after i googled the names of of Sylvia Hoax, mm-hmm. I don't know how to say Dutch names, or Carla Jury, or these incredible performers who play, you know, who have supporting roles, who uh-huh. come in, like, I mean, who are astounding Robin actors Wright. in that scene, in yeah. those scenes. Yeah, yeah. Um, my main question was, who the fuck thought this was going to make money? Well, for real, for real. So you're talking, you're like the stones on Denny Villeneuve to have this 20 minute sequence yeah. where there's four hands running on. And honestly, I mean, maybe I flipped you know, too quickly between no, art no, no, and no. powers. And, and to be honest, like, you know, that scene, you, you, you've written scenes before, like you usually have to have a destination you're getting to within any kind of dramatic scene, mm-hmm. like a character needs to do something. So Mackenzie Davis needs to get this bug, mm-hmm. this tracker inside of his coat pocket. Mm-hmm. Doesn't need to have 20 minute psychosexual mm-hmm. Hitchcocky and love scene to get there. They mm-hmm. could have just gotten it done like 45 seconds. Mm-hmm. What's really interesting about this is executive produced by Ridley Scott. It's Ridley Scott's, for lack of a better term, it, you know, even though Philip K. Dick wrote the novel, which this is based off of, and Harrison Ford has been associated with them with Blade Runner for 35 years or whatever. It's Ridley Scott's vision. And his many people say his masterpiece. And, his ma- and a lot of people, I, I disagree with that, but a lot of people mm-hmm. think it's his masterpiece. You love Kingdom of Heaven. You know, he's made a lot of movies, a lot of movies recently, and this one was written by uh, Hampton Fancher and Michael Green, who also wrote Covenant, which is a, a mess. It's a mess of a movie. What's interesting is that so Ridley Scott, he's been making these blockbusters. He's got a name as big as anybody mm-hmm. out there. His movies don't have these kinds of idiosyncratic parts. Like, Certainly not anymore. There's some stuff in, in in Prometheus. I mean, Prometheus, I actually have a lot of time for. But yeah, well, fa- Fastbender shooting hoops. I mean, that's that kind that of that kind of thing. But imagine about. Fastbender shooting hoops was the first 15 minutes instead of the first two minutes. I mean, it, it, yep. there's a certain. Uh, I don't know whether or not it's it's got got to do with age or your desire to make something happen. But there is a real almost rebellious streak inside of the filmmaking, and it, it mm-hmm. is kind of fascinating to see. Those guys like this, you know, Warner Brothers, Paramount, and Warner Brothers and Sony, who are and or the money behind this, mm-hmm. just being like, yeah, three hours, let's do it, three hours, and you're like, oh, well, you need to tell the story. It's like, no, they just want to hang out in this world. Yeah, and that's how I left it. I mean, in the beginning, I was starting to think, oh, well, I, I get some of the criticism or, or you know, uh, post game analysis I've seen, which says that people are exhausted by dystopia, at this, particularly now that we're living in one, and I, and I. I'm very sympathetic to that argument. But by the end of this film, the reverie, the tone, the feel of it, um, I was sad to leave it. And and that's a total surprise to me. I think that these are the sort of backroom stories I would love to hear about. I mean, they're things that we can, in many ways, Hollywood is more transparent than ever in terms of how movies get made. And we talk to, you know, we talk to filmmakers and we talk to production designers. Um, 
we get, you know, things are leaked to the Hollywood Reporter about who's to blame. How this managed to get made it might not be unpacked for a while. How we got this screenplay, which was certainly not without flaws, but actually does kind of seem like a synthesis between old and new, because Hampton Fancher is in his late 70s. He wrote the original Blade Runner. Um, and then Michael Green, who is an incredibly talented guy and is wrote doing... Wrote Logan, wrote Alien Covenant, yeah. And um, is doing, and, and did American Gods, mm-hmm. and Why the Last Man, uh, upcoming TV show if they ever actually get nice it together life. on FX. He's, but he's more of a modern TV brain. Sure. So the, this film does feel like a collision between older cinema and a little bit more contemporary TV plotting in terms of how it fit together. How, how they synthesize those two visions is an open question. But, I mean, it I does seem like they Ridley Scott pushed for Villeneuve. He's, he's made, he made Arrival profitable. He made mm-hmm. a movie, an original movie, Arrival, that made money. That's pretty much all it took to get to this point. But, but let's think about how we got to the larger point, which is that Blade Runner lost money when it came out. It is a cult classic. Yeah. One of perhaps the cult classic. And in fact, probably, and this has been written a bunch, but the fact that it has it does have eight different cuts mm-hmm. and has gone through so many different, you know, this is the director's cut, this is the 30th anniversary cut, this is the original theatrical cut, this is the European mm-hmm. theatrical cut, is part of its legend. So that's part of why it's held in such a cultish kind of regard mm-hmm. is because it's, 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 it's yeah it's not finished he's and and really scott's a tinkerer you know and that that's been written about before about how he likes to tweak things what was your going into this movie what was your last uh encounter with the original blade runner and how much of that did you carry into this movie so blade runner is a movie that i uh tr- i think i try to get my wife to watch once every five years <laughs> and also but the i don't want to make it sound like she it's not that she doesn't like it as much as I'm like, oh, yeah, this is a little slower than I remember. Mm-hmm. So you turn Blade Runner and you're like, yes. And Here we you, go. You know, you Let's run first, some blades. It's the first interrogation scene and the first shots of L.A. And then you're like, man, it's a dragon a little bit. Mm-hmm. Like this. Scene, and then there's like a couple fight scenes that are like 10 minutes each. Yeah, it's like punching in the rain. Yeah. Um, so I, I, I admire Blade Runner, but it is not like a foundational text for me. I actually think I enjoyed this Blade Runner 2049 more. Um, what about you? Are you like, have you been thinking about the mysteries of Blade Runner no. for most of your life? I mean, I, I, I saw the movie, I think when I was supposed to at a good time when I was like in high school, when I was, yeah, you know, it's like, oh, this blows my mind. Like, Get ready to have your mind blown. Here you go. And then I probably saw it at least one other time since then. But my memories of it are very experiential. You know, yeah. I remember the way it looked. I, I think I remember the way it felt. I remember the ending. I remember the music. But going into this, and I appreciate this, and I wonder if other people's experience was different. I did not realize that they were talking about Sean Young's character as the linchpin of the plot until the CGI new Sean Young. So they were talking about Rachel before, you you didn't remember that that was her. I I thought, well, I I just didn't remember. So I thought either this is what they're talking about or they're just inventing some middle story that we hadn't actually gotten to because I definitely didn't remember. They didn't really spend a ton of time. I mean, there's this, that blackout I think happens, Mm -hmm. which it takes place in between the two films that they Mm -hmm. reference a few times. That what, what what do they call it? And do they have a name for it? Well, they said it's the blackout, and yeah. they lost all their yeah. Data. They have lost all the data, and there's these corrupted it, files in various and, and archives. Apparently, I learned this from the website Wikipedia. Yeah. They've made a short film, a couple short films to connect dots. Oh, cool! And one of them is about the blackout, which I guess was some sort of uh, would be would be revolutionary slash terrorist blew up a dirty bomb like a mag- like a magnetic bomb above the city in order to do this to okay. break Tyrell's corporation. Blah blah blah. So here's what I wanted to ask you about, and we're talking a lot about the plot, but, um, you know, the, the ending is uh, pretty ambiguous. There's been uh, a theory that Mark Millar, the comics writer and screenwriter, mm. came up with that um, has been passed around a lot that kind of came out over the first weekend. Uh, that's basically that um, K is just a figment. He has an implanted memory in Deckard. Um, just because also the, uh, the two names that he has, Joe and K is joke. Oh, and I thought it was like Joseph K. Like we're talking Kafka. I actually think that that stands, that's better for me too. I think a lot of what people are trying to figure out is the fact that it's snowing on him when he dies and inside of the like safe room. Why is there the double snow? And she's got, she's playing with snow. Like she's still controlling Mm -hmm. his memories. Mm Um, that's, kind of a mirror of the original ambiguity ambiguous ending of of is deckard a replicant and how long can deckard and rachel live if they are replicants which which they played nicely with in this without giving us one thing or the other yeah um watching this film i think it's a testament to it's it's accomplishment as 
on a technical side, I didn't really find myself too too bothered by it either way. You know, I mean, I which the, the ending of the film and oh, also no. just sort of like the just general theme of like you know what is the difference? What's humanity? Well, What's they, a soul? You know, like I thought they did some very smart. I mean, they had a lot of time to think about this, and they meaning all the studios behind it: Ridley Scott, Hampton Fancher, whatever. And I thought they chose wisely in the story they wanted to tell. I thought it made a lot of sense to have a replicant be the hero. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is in A.O. Scott's review in The Times. You should read that if, if you haven't already. Like the way he describes Gosling as the perfect actor for this mm-hmm. and the way that he's used in the movie is perfect. Pivoting towards this idea of, you know, of robots as slave labor and as who gets to be treated as human. I mean, these are much more, these are certainly, these are universal themes, but they feel very a, a relevant way into the universe now as opposed to, are we really all going to be eating Japanese noodles? Like, what are we doing? You know, it, it's a, it's an interesting way in in yeah. terms of our empathy and our and our interest. Also, a good job of keeping human characters front and center, so we didn't feel like it was just a just a robot show. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought Robin Wright's character, uh, uh, Joshi or whatever yeah. her name was, she that she was a great audience avatar of just like shouting because everybody's pretty placid in this movie. Mm-hmm. Everybody's obviously, in, in, you know. Um, what did you think of Leto? Well, before we get to that, that's the big. Well, we should get to Sam. So I just wanted to ask, like, what you. I, yeah. well, so we can talk about this with Sam. It just I, the last thing about Villeneuve that I think is so impressive is the way he uses the the tools he's given. Yeah. Um, understanding why Harrison Ford is one of our great movie stars, even you know in his advanced age, mm-hmm. like what Harrison Ford can do with his face, with stillness, with reaction. This is what he is great at, you know, with obviously with he gets a lot of credit as dessert for being sardonic or one liners. But his reaction shots to what he's told and what he do you think that like him terrific. getting like him being stuck in a ship that was getting filled with water was in the original script? Do you think that was like a day of like, Harrison, we are going to keep you I, handcuffed to the chair and the water is going to come up. And he's just like, fuck. I mean, okay. this dude literally <laughs> basically died in a plane crash a year ago and then somehow is fine. And they were like, we're going to drown you yeah. for two days of shooting. That was pretty shocking to me. Pretty surprising. Also, like he didn't have to punch so much. I know he didn't have to, um, but he did. Uh, yeah, it's a big open question, and we'll and we'll throw this to Sam um, when when he joins us. Is is the Lido stuff? I'm I have a lot of questions about what movie that was. Yeah, it was I think very healthily um, quarantined in a lot of ways from the rest of the film. Yes. I thought it was interesting to read that Villeneuve's first choice for the role was David Bowie. Oh, and I would have loved obviously because yeah. it would have meant Bowie was still alive, but I would have loved to have seen that version of it because, and I don't mean this to disrespect Lido, who like. Went made for some it. choices. He went. He made yeah. choices. That's yeah, what yeah. you got to do. But he definitely seemed like no one. Like he was left off the email about like what the movie felt like. Yeah, but in fairness, it's an impossible character in a lot. Yeah, of ways. Tyrell. I mean, like in the original, that that guy's pretty pretty strange as well. But I think that he has. He feels more embedded in that world. Like it's believable that this guy is like a corporate magnate in that Blade yes, Runner world. Exactly. Whereas the Leto character, you're just kind of like there. This guy is the most powerful person on the planet. Uh, he's, he's so young, even though he's older than us. He still reads as young. Yeah. And this idea that this person who saved the world once and is now changing the world again, they've already gone to nine worlds in the back of his technology, that was a little bit off. Yeah. Um, that said, the the body horror or body, uh, it, I don't want to say just horror because there are moments that are quite beautiful, that birth scene, yeah. that turn to horror. The movie is so dense that we haven't even touched on that. Yeah. That, that exists in a mainstream film. I, I am not shocked this movie is losing <laughs> money, but I'm grateful that it exists. And why don't I think it would be great to bring on a director yeah. himself to talk to us about why this is so good. Let's take a quick break to hear from our sponsors, and then we'll be back with Sam Esmail. Today's episode of The Watch is made possible by Upstart. Never judge a book by its cover. Sound advice? But it doesn't apply to the banks when you apply for a personal loan. They take one look at your so-called credit score, and their minds are made up. If you need to borrow some money, consider Upstart. Upstart is revolutionizing the personal loan experience by going beyond the traditional credit score to assess credit worthiness for a personal loan. Using more than just your credit score, Upstart takes into account factors like your job experience and your education when determining your interest rate. With Upstart, applying for and receiving the funds you need is quick and easy. In just two minutes, you can find out your Upstart rate, and once your loan is approved, you can get your funds as soon as the very next day. Plus, checking your rate is free and does not affect your credit. Whether you need to pay off credit cards, consolidate debt, or make a large purchase, an Upstart personal loan can help. 
there's more to you than just your credit score. So skip the traditional loan process and see how low your upstart rate is now at upstart.com slash watch. Remember, it just takes two minutes to check your rate. That's upstart.com slash watch. Other restrictions apply. See site for details. Upstart loans are offered by Cross River Bank, a New Jersey state charter commercial bank. See upstart.com slash watch for details. Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by the homies at Sonos. God, I love my Sonos. I love it. It just pumps. I'm really getting into the sound of the Fender Telecaster. You want to expand on that? Just like early 60s blues, uh, Paul Butterfield, Mike Bloomfield just shredding a Telecaster. And it sounds great on my Sonos, on my Playbase. I just watch my television shows on my Playbase. And then I got this, the speakers pumping. Let me tell you a little bit about Sonos. You're very possessive about your Sonos. The whole point is Sonos could be anybody's. Uh, Of course. I'm just saying for a personal experience, I want to replicate that like a Blade Runner. Yeah. Okay. So Sonos lets you have pulse pounding sound in any room or every room at once. That's right. Play a different song in the living room, bedroom, even the bathroom, or the same track in every room. That's great for parties. Add your existing music services or discover something new. Whether curated or on demand, free or subscription-based, Sonos has you covered with access to a growing list of music services. And Sonos is simple app, and I cannot stress enough how easy this Sonos mm-hmm. is to set up. I can think of a couple places that could learn from their ease of use. Ikea. <laughs> Sonos' simple app lets you control everything from songs to volume to rooms all in one place. Sonos brings together all of your music. you got to get this in your life, Sonos. We are now joined live from the mix stage somewhere in Culver City, our good friend, friend of the pod, Mr. Robot Creator, cinephile, (laughs) Sam Esmail. Sam, how are you? I'm I'm doing well, guys. How are you? I'm so sad I'm not there. I wish I was there. We wish you were here too, Sam. Before we get into it, the glorious Sunset Gower Studios. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. By the way, the way, way, to, way to out us. I thought we were <laughs> incognito here in the middle of Hollywood. Oh, 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 yeah. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Yeah, uh, yeah. Um, couple points of business we have to get to before before we get into it. One, you know, we obviously the lay of the land has changed since we last spoke on the podcast. You and I are both um, on the wrong side of forty now. I think that's important because I because if I have to suffer, you have to suffer too. Yeah, it it, it is it is depressing. I mean, guys, forty is not the new anything. Forty is pretty much forty, and it's pretty miserable. Young Chris Ryan sitting it. here at thirty nine and eleven months is just sipping tea. Yeah, He's don't loving know about it. I, I don't know, you guys. Life, every day, life is just another new dream come true. Two, you've also now joined joined the club of being married. Congratulations. Thank you. That that I love. That I you know that that's great. And we had a fun wedding. It, um, that I'm enjoying. Forty, and, not so much. You know, Chris and I were ready with mics to do the wedding after show. <laughs> and what's weird is none of the guests none of the guests agreed to appear on it. Um, but th- that's okay. I don't think Emmy would have wanted us to do that. Um, third note. Yeah. yeah. Third note that I have to say, um, in the interest of full disclosure. Um, something you know, Sam. You and I have have been working together. We've worked together. That'd be amazing if Sam did not know this. That would be super weird. Um, so <laughs> we're not. What? So we're not going to get into specifics. But just, I, you know, obviously my criticism. Uh, you've always found it suspect. But but in this case, when we're talking about S-mail projects, obviously I am. I am. Uh, I at least have one foot in the tank. Is that correct? Is yeah. that fair to say? Yeah. Are you looking at me like I'm yeah. like the Columbia journalism? You're the. You? I got the ombudsman here, and I got I got Sam somewhere in Culver City. <laughs> So, so that, so, but I did not work on Mr. Robot. Right. So, so we can we can but we'll talk. We'll be talking about a little bit. You did not work on Mr. Yeah, but you, you have. We have work. There has been work exchanged between us. That, that <laughs> Goods we, and we, we put in work right. while the Gangstar song plays in the background. So let let's get into let's get into this. Let's get into before we okay, talk about right. Mr. Robot itself. Let's talk about Blade Runner twenty forty nine. Um, you, I, I know as a as a fan of movies, but particularly a fan of of the original Blade Runner, must have been going into this with very high expectations according to twitter which never is the source of poor information you this hit this hit the mark for you you love the film yeah i mean it's weird because i'm not going to compare it to the original movie i i I can't do that and so i I, in a weird way i wish it wasn't a sequel to it i wish it was just denis villeneuve's dystopic future 
you know, fantasy, uh, you know, his own original creation. But, um, but I still, I mean, again, not comparing it to the original, I just love it on its own. I mean, the, the tone of it is just so precise. Um, the, the, the music, the, the, I mean, in the cinematography, I mean, Roger Deakins, I, I mean, he has photographed things in that film that I have never quite seen in, in anything else. So, I mean, if he doesn't win an Oscar this year, it's just, it's criminal at this point. Um, yeah. So I, I was pretty much blown away. I mean, and it was pretty long too. I mean, what was the running time on this? 245 about? 245. Yeah. Yeah. And I gotta say, I felt it a little bit, but. I didn't mind. I, I, I was in it. I mean, again, I just love the tone in the world. I, I'd hang there for hours. But, um, yeah. I, I was, I was, what did you guys think? I mean, Andy, I'm more curious about you because I, I have a feeling, I don't know, I have a feeling you're going to be mixed about it. No, so we, people who are listening to the podcast have heard me go on about it, So, in, which, which I, I'm sorry we didn't, we, we didn't let you yeah, listen you to. Had some, you had some skepticism, right? You, you were like, no one's talking about it, there's no... Yeah, we were both kind of a little bit now. suspicious about the fact that there didn't seem to be that six-week mm-hmm. to two-month advance word, like, this is really good, you guys... Because, you know, there's like movies like now, it's like practically... Everybody who was going to see Call Me By Your Name has seen it. Like, I, I haven't seen it, but, like, you know, the, there are some of these yeah. movies that are really, like, critically well, lauded. It seems like they've been through three festivals already. But it also seems like there's been a flip now where the movies that are sort of gliding in, the expensive movies that are gliding in relatively under the radar are the success stories. There's so much chatter now about problems, you know, problematic films mm-hmm. and reshoots and, right. and, and sales jobs by right. marketing teams trying to fix things. So much like... Everything we've we haven't heard anything about the Last Jedi, which makes me think it's going to be great. Similarly, Blade Runner just sort of, I guess, sailed through and is exactly what Villeneuve intended it to be. And I thought it was triumphant for that reason. I just think it is it's a completely immersive, beautiful, haunting piece of cinematic art that was actually for me it was really enjoyable despite the running time. That was my biggest reservation was the running time. To be honest with you, yeah, I, and and honestly, I saw I saw it before it opened. And I remember leaving, and I thought with Emmy, and you know, she loved it too. And we were just both like, you know, mind blown after the after the film. But I had a sneaking suspicion that that wasn't going to go over well at the box office. And then, of course, unfortunately, it didn't. Um, because I, I, you know, I think Villeneuve doesn't mind letting things breathe and getting ponderous at times, and medi- you know, going in this sort of meditative pace. But that's that's what's so beautiful about the film, and and um, and it's a shame that's going to be a hurdle for a lot of people. Or apparently, I, I don't know if that's that's the thing. I mean, it I obviously didn't do well for maybe multiple reasons, but I had a feeling that that might be a big factor. Commerce and box office aside, can you, as a director and as a director who is working in today's Hollywood cinematic whatever economy? Can you explain to the layman why Villeneuve seems so exceptionally good at this, at, at being able to Trojan horse art films into, and obviously this wasn't palatable to everyone, but he's still getting the budgets and he's getting the franchises and he's continuing to work. Why is he so particularly suited to these times? He, I mean, I think he's just a master of tone. I mean, I keep going back to that. Uh, he knows how to direct, I mean, it, the 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 performances are consistent. The music and the look are consistent from frame to frame, from scene to scene. It's never, um, you're, you know what it is? Here's what it is. And this is just a sign of any good director. The minute the movie starts, the minute a Denis Villeneuve movie starts, whether you end up liking that movie or not, you know you're in good hands. You know that the mm-hmm. guy, you know, that's helming this ship knows what he's doing, knows how this movie should sound and look and performed. And, um, and that, that, that confidence, uh, I don't know where it comes from, but that confidence just, just comes off the screen. And, um, and he's also very, you know, very specific and very consistent with that specific vision. I mean, he's a visionary. I mean, you can tell he has a very unique way of looking at the world, and um, and he translates that very well. And he keeps just he keeps doing it. I mean, the guy has an insane track record at this yeah. point. I mean, every movie for the last uh, however many years is it five now at this point five or six? Yeah, since thirteen. Has, has so been, prolific. I mean, just and they're each so exceptional. Um, it would be, I mean, for me, it would be hard to kind of 
start ranking them. There's not a dud in there, uh, and, and that's just that's just that's just a testament to how confident he is in his vision. And you know, for a lot of the things that he does are very bleak. Um, not a lot of not necessarily a lot of humor. Uh, although enemy, I think. For me personally, I don't know if you guys. I find enemy really funny. Yeah, Yeah, it's it's really funny, but um, but but you know, in a dark way, and the fact that it it's still so accessible, it's still you know, it still finds a way to capture your imagination, um, even though you know, because you know, how 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 many times are we going to watch a dystopic, you know, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, 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 kind of dramatic you know, vision of the world and our, you know, involving social issues. And he just somehow does it in this, just, he doesn't forget to bring the entertainment value to it. And he just somehow, it's like what you just said, Andy, it brings, he brings, he Trojan horses, the art house into this accessible, entertain, entertaining way. And, um, yeah, I, I think it's that confidence that he has. It just, it just comes right across the screen. And, you know, from the from first minute, that you're in good hands. You know, there's something that's uh, I, I hadn't really thought about it until I heard you talking, Sam. But there's something really interesting about the way that when you think about, um, especially Sicario and Blade Runner, and even Arrival, he does something that you actually do too with Robot, it, where he, it's essentially these very limited character dramas. When you think about how many people are actually of any sig- characters of any significance in these movies, you're talking about three, four, maybe. Uh, and and yet the world behind these characters is so deep and it goes so far out into the landscape and you can just see, you know, like, oh, there's this ruins of San Diego, which is just a landfill now. Mm-hmm. And, it, you know, it, and it's that same thing. I was just noticing that last night when mm-hmm. there were shots in, in the robot premiere where, you know, you're going by and there's like a a FEMA tent and they're handing out, but you're not stopping to belabor like, and then the FEMA people showed up at this point. And it's that, it's that really interesting thing where you take what is assembly, essentially a a chamber drama. Like there's a large part of Blade Runner. That's like him walking into a room and trying to solve a case, you know, but the world in which he is solving this case is so incredible. I was just wondering if you ever think about the balance between like, well, you know, I'm going to have this huge world, but I'm going to keep the perspective dialed into these two or three characters. Yeah, no, I mean, you, you, I think you absolutely, you know, I think you absolutely have to do that because point of view is everything. And that's where I honestly, that's where like, when I say tone, that's where I think that comes from. And if you start, if you are doing sort of more of a, 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 uh, if you start widening the scope of that, and it's you know, and it's too big, um, it, it that could get unruly. And so, keeping it a little claustro- a little claustrophobic, like an, like Arrival has that claustrophobia yeah. feel. I mean, feel. I mean, you're you're literally what are you in like a military tent for most of the time, mm-hmm. or you're on that ship. Um, I mean, if you think about the locations in that film, it's not a lot. Um, but it's, but because you're with Amy Adams and because you're in that point of view, you're, you're getting such a rich, uh, sort of personal experience and what she, and what she's going through. And then that, that's the scope. And it's, you know, I think that's the thing that, that's so great about him is that his production value always goes back to the characters and, and the world and everything around them are the details that enriches that. And he, look, I, He's so detail oriented that everything you just said about San Diego and what he did with Blade Runner. I mean, everything in the background, in the background, in the corners of the frame, are intentional and thought through. And um, um, but but ultimately, that the thing that he cares about the most, the thing that he always wants you to focus on, are the people and what they're going through and how they're relating to others and their journey. And uh, and you know, I think. In a lot of ways, that's why I think his films feel grounded and maybe feel more adult. Yeah, it's, it's not about. Yeah, he it's finds not about the set piece. It's about the guy going or the or the girl going through the set piece. He know? finds the almost the perverse and the almost the avant garde in these very uh, knowable settings. You know, suburban Pennsylvania for prisoners, uh, a Canadian or, or, city and enemy, or, or that scene in the beginning of Sicario in Arizona, where yeah. it's just the, the bodies are in the house. Yeah, right. And it's just he finds this sort of right. th- almost the like the cancer underneath. That, the bo- bodies buried in things is a recurring. Yeah, theme, right. And he yeah. finds a way. A to lot of body horror in this stuff. 
But, this, but think about think about that great set piece in Sicario where you're with Emily Blunt's character in that car, and then you're stuck oh, in traffic, oh and there are literally guys with guns in other cars. Yeah. But you're stuck in this car with her. I mean, you know, in lesser hands, that would have been a million and one wide shots and guns firing everywhere, and you know, and um, but he keeps it really contained. And I mean, and again, just to down to the details, not just with the cinematography where you're literally just with Emily Bunt's character in the car, but the sound, the sound of the guns sound, you know, sound like, a, you know, from that perspective of being in the car, it's not overly done or exaggerated for any sort of dramatic effect. I think that always carries, I mean, that sequence in particular, I remember I found fascinating and suspenseful more than any, if, if he had shot, if he had leaned into the sort of action aspect of it that would have, you know, diluted it. I think it has a lot to do with taste, too. I mean, Denis Villeneuve really knows that, you know, the, the tasteful way of really getting inside someone and, and, and trying to match their experience as close as possible. This is a question about Blade Runner, but it, it's probably as good a time as any to segue a little bit into Mr. Robot, because I think you face a lot of the same, uh, you, you, you have to consider the same balancing act. And, and what that is, is, and I, I said this at the beginning of the pod, watching Blade Runner made me so grateful that it was a movie and grateful that it hadn't been infiltrated with a lot of the TV storytelling ticks or tricks that I often applaud in TV and, and sometimes recently in movies. What I mean is, you know, it left us in places. It brought us into places. It transitioned. It didn't have to always explain everything. I, I'm thinking about that s- sudden cut to the forest where um, Staline is mm-hmm. making a memory yeah. of the bug, and, and we don't know where we are, and there's that deep sense of dislocation that we've actually, that we historically went to movies for, and now in TV, often, you know, it, we don't, audiences want to be comforted even while they're challenged. So I, I, I guess somewhere in there is a question about how you are finding, as you're into year three of your show, coming at it from a cinematic perspective, coming at it from a director always uh, first, how you are managing that balance. Because one of my great joys in the season three premiere are these little um, autori grace notes, like when, when uh, Elliot mutes the world. You know, or when you when you jump cut to scenes from our present day into this story, you you are you are giving us some uh, unsettling images and unsettling storytelling ideas that we're not expecting. But you are in year three of a serialized TV show. Yeah, well, I don't I don't know if I think about it that externally, and what I mean by that is I don't know if I take a step back and and, and birds eye view it and say, well, you know, here's the TV medium, here's, you know, here's what audiences are expecting and let me play to that in any way. I I think I go back to what I was saying that I admire about Villeneuve's work Um, and really any film or television show is that it, you know, the flourishes have to be organic and they have to be bred from character because ultimately it, I mean, I, th- I think I said this to you guys last year on the on the on the podcast where um, I don't care about plot. In a lot of ways, I don't even know if I remember the plot of Blade Runner twenty forty nine. I know he was looking for Harrison Ford, I think, and or no, he's looking for the the kid. Uh, uh, and then for a while, I, I, he I thinks he's the kid. Yeah, the, yeah, exactly. And then he thinks he's the kid, um, but that's not to me the important part. The important part is the character and, 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 and the journey and what they're going through and all those other things are just the MacGuffins, the excuse to go on this ride. Um, and so that's, so those details always come from, well, what is Elliot? Like if I'm trying to put you in his head, um, what can I do in an audio visual way that best exemplifies that? And that's where the ideas like the mute button um, uh, or those flashes of images of a, of a dark future, which happens to be our current present, um, would would come into uh, Elliot's head. And that, to me, is where I, I, I always want to keep you. And by the way, that sometimes will be disorienting. Yeah, that's... Um, that sometimes will be inaccessible. And I think that's okay. I think that's great if that's what Elliot's going through. I think you touched on that a little bit when you were talking about Blade Runner. You were like, yeah, you know, like... it. There were times where I found it challenging, but it never lost me. When you're making a piece of, you know, visual art like that, when you're making a narrative, a show or or a film or something like that, how hard is it to find that balance where you're like, I want to challenge the audience a little bit. I want to 
provoke a response and that response might even be restlessness or antsiness but I don't want to lose people completely like as a viewer you know how that feels when you're watching it how how do you go about doing that as a creator well, look, you're talking to a guy that after doing a second season of a television show, you know, we've got very, very divisive uh, response um, because, you know, I chose to, to, to put the story in a very challenging way for the audience. Um, and, and ultimately, my compass, right, the thing that I rely on is how do I feel about it? Do I enjoy it when I watch it, even though I may not understand everything that's going on, even though the, I may not, uh, I may uh, feel disoriented. Does it feel intentional? Does it feel like, again, going back to, um, uh, do I feel like I'm in the right hands? That even though I, uh, I'm not following every step and there's not exposition to explain every little detail, um, am I enjoying the ride nonetheless? And, and do I feel confident that, you know, that I'm going to, that I want to know what will happen next. I mean, that's, that's the whole, that's the whole key. Right. And so you, you kind of have to go back to that taste meter. I mean, it's that, it's that, uh, you know, like there's a, I don't know if you guys saw mother. I mean, if you haven't, you've got to talk about it, but yeah, you have, I have, well, I don't know. I mean, let me say my opinion first and then you, and then you can say yours. That, that was a very divisive, divisive film. I loved it, thought it was a masterpiece. Um, and I, you know, and I, I've gotten into debates with people about it, but the one great thing about Mother is it's so, time after time, defied narrative logic. You could not access the movie because it intentionally kept you away. But, it, it, but in a weird way, that so locked you in to Jennifer Lawrence's character. And that, that's why it felt so great to me. It was a pure character journey from beginning to end, even though I didn't really know what the fuck was going on half the time. But, um, I, Chris, before, I'm curious, do you... Did, <laughs> Sam knows I didn't see it. I actually... Uh, I, I found yeah. it. I thought it was a blast to watch. Like it was, it was strange going into it because I missed it. I was away when it came out, and I sort of missed the first round of everybody being like, "This is one of the worst slash most upsetting Hollywood films in a long time." And I watched it, and I was like, "It was just gripping." You know, I think it, there was parts of it that I could have done without. You know, or there was. I, I think the last third, uh, once the rave starts, kind of starts to lose me. But right. the first two thirds, <laughs> suddenly I'm interested. By where the way. it's just like Polanski on oh, speed. Amazing. What's that? <laughs> no, go ahead. I said the last third's amazing. Yeah. I, mean, I couldn't disagree with you more. So you, you you like it when it turns into a war zone? I mean, I loved it. I loved it because I just went in this visceral. It, it's. It, I'll, I'll make another reference point. It's it's the way I felt about Twin Peaks this season, which I which I think wow. is a, is a masterpiece. It's the best so, show on television. Yes. Um, because you. He, I mean, he literally barricaded you from understanding what was going on. Yeah, and it just broke you down in a way where, um, where it put you in what a movie or a television show put should put you in into this sort of visceral emotional journey that really doesn't rely on any sort of logic. Look, if you want to know. The story, you know, if, if if that's what you care about, then just read the Wikipedia article. Right. Um, but the, the, that's not the experience of watching it. The experience is to really kind of strap you into a ride, and that involves tone and emotion and journey. And sure, the plot is kind of like the the, the foundation there, but um, it, but really, it's really about the you know all those other for, foreground elements that that really <laughs> engages you. Again, this is my opinion. It's so been when you do when you have that when you have that sort of point of view, that's the risk is what mothers react. I mean, that to me is like that's a great movie. That's a, his masterpiece. I think that's Aronofsky's best film. The risk was what happened to it, which is you know it got some it got an F cinema score. Like who gives a shit about that the <laughs> cinema score? But it got that. It got divisive reactions, and if that's and but I mean I, I mean I think at the at the end of the day I'm proud that Aronofsky took that risk and I think that I, and I hopefully he's proud of it and um, and for me it's like that's worth that's worth the risk that you know that you know having having a a, a movie that maybe is polarizing is not at the end of the day if that's the risk if that's not at the end of the day it's not worth uh, abandoning it that to compromise to to spoon feed the audience. 
where the story is going or should be or whatever, you know. And I, I honestly think that's more of a dangerous slippery slope that you feel like you need to, you know, you need to handhold the audience. I think that you always go that way. I mean, in my, this is again my opinion. You always take the take the take the risk and and try and go for the ride. We probably should talk some specifics about um, the robot premiere. But what you're saying makes me think of something that I really loved about this episode about 301, and and something that I loved about what I know of the season to come, which is you have threaded through this episode um, Angela's desires and and Angela's desires have now seemed to become almost supernatural and that she believes she can not only it's not just undoing the hack or closing the back door she believes she can change time and space and bring people back to life and you have a image of the of a large hadron collider in the early part of the episode and and white rose's you know constant obsession with time um you know as, as we all know our friend sarah's back to the future theory about your show is potentially still in play you are, you are, in some ways, this is, reminds me of something that you did in Comet, in your movie, which flirts with Supernatural, but that's not what the movie is actually, well, I, I shouldn't say it's not what it's about, but it doesn't go in, towards that in a, in a predictable way. All of this is prologue to the fact that you know better than anyone that your show is also um, a Reddit darling, mm-hmm. that your show um, has people combing through every line of dialogue, every throwaway um, image, and there are no throwaway images, but every seemingly um, unimportant image for clues to solve it like a puzzle. Um, you are, judging by your answers, you are comfortable with that, putting something out there and then understanding that people are going to be hunting you like a bloodhound to see whether it's quote-unquote true or not. Yeah, I mean, uh, I'm 100% comfortable with that. Um, I, I, I hope for their sake, that's not all they do. You know, um, (laughs) again, it's like the fact that just using the word answers, that's not what you, that's not what I look for. And, uh, and that's not what one should look for when they watch my show or, or any show. It's not about the answers. It's, it goes back to that word journey. It's about going, going on the ride. Um, I think I think the Reddit and by the way I'm a redditor so I remember doing this when I was a fan you know when I watched Lost um, I, I there's a different level of engagement you can you know you can do after the show airs you go online you you read every message board and every theory and you you get into debates with all your friends um, and that's just another way of experiencing the same story like sort of uh, a, an extra level of engagement. Um, but I hope for their sake, they're not watching the thing and continually, you know, watching it with like a magnifying glass, hoping to catch Easter eggs or details. I hope they have at least a a, a viewing where they, you know, where they kind of just take it in and enjoy it and, 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 and hang out with Elliot and Angela and all the other characters. We had a, you had a a really strong season premiere last night. Bobby Cannavale is on the show now and I, completely adore his performance i'm so excited about him being there it's such a oh nice oh my god he's so good isn't he tonal he's so good i mean it's just like having bringing in a relief pitcher who can like just you know who, who who throws off speed stuff and just dazzles you with it he's so not what i expected in that part and is so much more the welcome for it um but i guess you know and hopefully we'll have you to come back on to talk more about the season as it goes on but the big question that i have um and i think viewers will be and listeners of our show will be interested in uh, as the season gets going is what? How did you approach the third season, um, and what changed in your approach, if anything? Because famously, you know, everybody knows that that the show derived from a script to which you had a beginning, middle, and end, or at least you had an outline of a beginning, middle, and end. But what has changed in your right. approach to the show going into this third season um, because of two events that happened since the last season? One was, in your words, the divisive response to that season. And you know some some criticism that came your way, some of which came from this podcast, and two, obviously the election, which you know, as Jim Ponawazic from the Times was sort of joke tweeting today, it's like that Mr. Robot is now a charming story about how simple things were back in 2015. Um, how did those two elements change the tenor or your approach, the tenor of the show, or your approach to it, um, in a way that people might notice or be excited to hear about going forward? Well, I, I'll say, I'll, to, just to address the season two reaction, there was a lot, I mean, you can, you can imagine, there's a, you know, after having the, what happened with the first season, 
Um, and then the, 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 the sort of backlash of the second season, there's a lot of talk going into the third season about it's got to be like season one. We got to do what we did season one again. You know, we got we talked about it, didn't we? I think Chris suggested Elliot get a girlfriend. Did uh, I? Point, <laughs> Chris um, is always yeah, giving the network, so. the network uh, notes. Number 2.0. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah. Uh, Chris gave us notes. Um, it, 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 Sam, you what know, you need is a will they or won't they? <laughs> you need, yeah, who, where's the Ross and Rachel of this show, yeah. Sam? Yeah, exactly. I mean, but seriously, I mean, I know we're joking, but there was a lot of chatter of we got to do season one over again. And in fact, I think I read one review even for this season where uh, 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 somebody somebody wrote that man, this show should be a, you know I think uh, I think this show would be better if it were procedural. Um, and 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 look, I, I I love season one. You know you know how I feel about the. I think season two is better than season one. Um, I ultimately going into season three had to kind of dismiss all of that and say, we, we cannot just repeat what we're doing. We cannot start freaking out because the reactions of season two weren't the same as season one. I was surprised by the reaction of season one, to, to be honest. And I think I, I actually spoke with you about that after the uh, Andy, uh, after, mm-hmm. after our first season. I mean, I thought we were always going to be this little small cult show and, the fact that the um, and and that's part of the reason why season two was the way it was because I was still in that mindset. Um, so you know, I think the danger, and we've seen it in other shows, is when you start leaning into fan service. Well, if the fans want X, the fans want Elliot to hack, and you know, and that there's a clear antagonist and all of this, and this is what we need to give them. And I think that if you watch other shows that do the fan service, I, you guys have actually spoken about it. Um, that's a slippery slope, and that starts to feel transparent, and that's and then that's when things start to feel formulaic and predictable. So the, it was, it, you know, a lot of it was going into the into into the third season was trying to ignore all of that and to 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 really kind of continue the story that we set out to you know set out to tell from the beginning, and that's all we did. We really just continue, you know, did the kind of forward march to our end game. Now, what we found was, I mean, because, you know, the beginning of season three was always this this story about Elliot undoing what he did, about realizing that he was at fault, that even though he had the best intentions, um, it, it, you know, it, it didn't work. It, not, not only did it not work, it made it worse. Um, and that he needs to own response, you know, he needs to take, take ownership of it, take responsibility and set out a new course to fix it or, or, or to, 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 re- to reverse it. Um, while we were doing that, the election happened. And I remember when that happened, obviously it's a catastrophic event, right? I mean, and again, I'm not trying to be political about this. I don't, this isn't like a Republican Democrat thing. It's not like a policy issue. It's not about healthcare or anything like that. We have an unintelligent, unprincipled, uh, man in the in the White House, and that's a dangerous thing. I mean, he's completely unfit, and he's he's in charge of a superpower with a nuclear arsenal. That's a catastrophic event that happened when he got elected president. And we sat in the writers' room, and we felt responsible, even though none of us voted for him. There was an indirect feeling of did we did we not do enough? Did we do something wrong? There was remorse. Immediately after, um, there was there was a piece of us that felt like maybe we were being too condescending. We thought we had it in the bag, all of this stuff, and um, and we let this happen. And it just overlapped so much with the way Elliot felt mm-hmm. taking off the third season, and that kind of symbiotic thing. I, you know, I yeah, you know, I'm not a fortune teller or anything like that, but. That sort of symbiotic thing that happened in the room when that, uh, when that went down was just something that we knew we had to include as we were writing the third season. So, so you're saying something good came from the election. That's the headline. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> just kidding. Uh, no, we should, we should somehow undo, undo the uh, election. But I, I, will, I will say this. You know, you mentioned um, that tweet. I, re- I, I think I read he, – he wrote a th- – he, he, he kind of wrote a thread about it later, yeah. saying um, that, that, I can't remember exactly what it was, but something about 
um, we had, you know, the, 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 when Mr. Robot started, there was the hope of this kind of future neoliberal, you know, fantasy world, and it ended up being kind of the opposite. You know, again, I'm ter- I'm horrifically paraphr- paraphrasing right now. And I gotta say, again, that was the sense in the room. Yeah. I mean, I think, that, I mean, it was weirdly well, lined up in a weird well, way. Well, no, it, yeah. it, it added some real pathos to that premiere because, I, I mean, I mentioned already, but but Angela wishing that she could literally change time—that is something that I wish every morning when I wake up and look at Twitter. I mean, that, that is that is <laughs> yeah, a human concern I, I, now. Um, that, that, that's, that's something. I mean, the fact- yeah. yeah, the fact that I think we all kind of wish we could undo, we could go back. If we just went, you know, if, if we could just have that, that wish fulfillment of just going back one year and changing a couple of things, could, could we avoid this? But the, the great thing about it is the, cathar- the cathartic thing. And again, I'm not saying this is the good thing that came out of the election, but I'm saying the cathartic thing is now that it has happened, there, there ain't no going back. And that is kind of the, you know, that is basically the arc of our season is that as much as Elliot's going to attempt to undo any of this, he's going to have to learn that the, the only, you know, the only uh, path is, is is going forward, and and he's going to have to find a way to get through it, just like, just like you know, we did in the writers' room. That's as good a place as any to leave us on our conversation about Mr. Robot Sam. I have to give you one last opportunity, though. Um, I mentioned this at the beginning of the show. You have been very, and we appreciate it, you have been very free with your your notes back towards us, um, you know, and how we can improve our yeah. show. You you have the mic right now. Zach is uh, burying his head I in mean, his hands. I, 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 yes. I mean, look. No, Zach, Zach is a dream. I, I don't have any notes for Zach. It's, it's, really, it's really you two, because here, here's my thing. Fair. I, I, want, I watch TV. And so that, that and what, that's what separates you from the two of us. <laughs> well, and that's no, no, but in all seriousness, I want to hear. And what I like about your podcast is, is I get to hear your opinions. And as much as I as much as I like your opinions on the Star Wars trailer, <laughs> I'd rather hear it about the dudes. I really would. Okay. I mean, when the Star Wars movie comes out, sure, talk about it all day long. Trailer, you know. I'd you, rather hear the dude. You just, I'd rather hear... You just hate porgs, man. Watch, uh, what's that? You hate porgs. That's the problem. <laughs> I mean, uh, I actually did, didn't get that at all. Why was there such a porgs fascination? Because there's a screaming gerbil in the trailer. Because I'm 40. It's the meme, dog. It's the meme. Well, that's, the, that's the meme. <laughs> <laughs> I'm 40. I don't, I don't understand. <laughs> you don't, I don't do memes anymore. You did um, a couple months ago. <laughs> Um, yeah, so that's my biggest note, though. The biggest, biggest note, you, you go, get back to the, okay. the TV watching. And, 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 and Chris, stop vacationing. It's, it's over. <laughs> we got to dig in now. Sorry, I should You're get back. back to work. Let's... <laughs> yeah, but Chris, Chris, Chris should vacation while he's young. He's got literally one month left. Um, so, Sam, our only note back to you is come back, uh, come back and talk to us again this season because we love talking to you. But next time you got to schlep from Culver yeah, City. Yeah, yeah, come on down, or we'll come to you. Thanks, Sam. I, uh, no, I, I, I have to. All right, bye, guys. Later. Right, thanks, buddy. All right, uh, do you, you still want to do Tom Petty? Or all right. Thanks very much to Sam Esmail. Andy and I will be back on Monday. We have actually this really fun thing that we're doing at the Ringer. It's the Ringer's NBA Preview Palooza. It's two days of a mixture of live and pre-taped video segments, all previewing the NBA season. And Andy and I will be participating. Andy's going to be joining me. I'm going to be hosting a lot of these videos, mm-hmm. a lot of this this time. But Andy, mm-hmm. the beast has been awoken. Yeah. And bead back. I am so ready. So I think Andy's going to come NBA on season. and talk a little bit about Joel, the promised one, oh uh, and the process. I'm so excited. Uh, so uh, I'm not sure what's going to happen on Monday for the Pod Pod, since I will be on camera at that time. But we'll oh, really? Figure it out. Yeah, sorry, I didn't know that. <laughs> what well, breaking news on this podcast? Well, and you know what's weird? This is maybe not the time to say it, but. Apparently, Katie Nolan signed with ESPN, yeah, thus sorry. dashing <laughs> everyone's expectation sure. that she was going to slide right in here. A couple other notes. Wednesday, I will be doing a live rewatchables with Bill Simmons, Jason Concepcion, and Shea Serrano. We're doing the movie Face Off. That's at Largo. So if there are still tickets available, you should definitely come through if you're in L.A. Boy, a lot of these notes are Chris-centric. Sorry, man. Do you, Do you have any personal announcements? 
I mean, I saw a movie. Don't I get credit for that? Okay, <laughs> yeah. go on. What, what other notes do we and have? And that's from... it. I love doing my podcast with Andy Greenwald. <laughs> yeah, that's where we're uh, at. Thanks to Zach, thanks to Sam Asmail. We will be back next week. Apparently. I mean, I'm not sure. Today's episode of The Watch was brought to you by Mack Weldon. With a smart design, premium fabrics, and a simple shopping experience, Mack Weldon's underwear is definitely better than whatever you are currently wearing. In addition to looking and feeling great, all Mack Weldon products are crafted with natural fibers that have built-in performance capabilities, so they work hard too. They even have a lot of silver underwear and shirts that are naturally antimicrobial, which means they eliminate odor, all that, plus they're shipped to your door. I love Mack Weldon underwear. If you don't like your first pair, which I cannot possibly imagine, don't worry, you can keep it. They will still refund you, no questions asked. Go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off your first purchase using the promo code WATCH. Today's episode of The Watch was brought to you by Sonos. Andy and I love using Sonos. You can play music, different music in different rooms. If having a party, you can play the same song in every room. It is just the modern stereo system. I don't know what else to tell you. It's just uh, a lifesaver. Sonos lets you have pulse-pounding sound in any room or every room at once, and you can add your existing music services or discover something new, whether it's curated or on demand for your subscription base. Sonos has you covered with access to a growing list of music services. Better yet... Sonos' simple app lets you control everything from songs to volume to rooms all in one place. Sonos brings all of your music together. 